is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 219, African-American World War II pilot, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. Coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Roseleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felton, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to the podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, I have a special guest, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, a passionate aviator with a unique story to tell. Uh, fortunately, Lieutenant Stewart launched a new book telling his story. He's, you know, one of the only few living World War II Tuskegee Airmen pilots, and his book, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II, tells the story of how he and his fellow airmen risked their lives to shoot down Nazis all over Europe while fighting racial prejudice both at home and in the air. And uh, this this is an amazing account. I've been reading the book, um, and it's a terrific story. A story about those, uh, I guess it was 14 when I, was, I wrote this, but it's really 11 uh, who are still surviving, who flew 43 combat missions in Italy. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about one of the really amazing missions where it shot down three planes in one day. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast, Colonel Stewart. No, thank you very much. Thank you. I, uh, it's, this is really a pleasure to have you here. And I really, uh, one of the things I want to say first is thank you for your service. And uh, we really appreciate all those that have served, uh, especially those uh, during World War II. It's, but it's just such a pleasure to talk to you. You had mentioned the book, and I, I just wanted to make uh, uh, one uh, addition there. It's not a correction, it's addition, but uh, it's a biography. And the uh, author is uh, Philip Handelman, who is a, an accomplished writer and also a uh, pilot who lives up in uh, Oxford, Michigan. But we collaborated together as far as his book is concerned, but uh, I consider it uh, his being the uh, author there because he fashioned these words together so they make uh, much more intelligence than I think I could have made. <laughs> you know, and Philip does an amazing job. He really does have a gift with words, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And, uh, but uh, it's it's a terrific story. Don't spoil the whole thing for me. I'm halfway through it, but but, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about it here. But I really highly recommend going out and uh, reading the book. You can get it online. Uh, that's what I did. I downloaded it as an ebook. It's in it's in all the different stores. We'll have a link, by the way, in the show notes, so you can actually uh, check it out there. Uh, but anyway, let's uh, talk a little bit about your story. I mean, you truly are one of those people that are passionate about aviation and uh you just didn't it didn't just start with world war ii i mean it goes back spans your lifetime tell us a little bit about your your early love affair with aviation well i think it starts with uh, infancy i was born in uh, newport news virginia uh, uh, we were living not far from a uh, army air corps base uh, langley field my folks tell me my parents tell me that uh 
when I was an uh, infant, they would put me out in the crib outside there, and the planes from the Army air base would fly overhead, and that this would immediately spark my interest, and I would crane my neck looking at the... Uh, at the planes there and start cooing at the planes. So they said it started at an early age. I take their word for it. But then uh, <clears throat> then around two years old, uh, uh, the, the family moved to uh, Queens in uh, New York City, the borough of Queens. Uh, we moved about uh, a mile and a half from a local airport by the name of uh, North Beach Airport. Today, most people will recognize it as uh, LaGuardia Airport. And uh, I used to, as a teenager, walk over to the uh, air, to that uh, field there and watch the planes take off and fantasize about being a pilot in the cockpit there and uh, actually flying the plane myself. So you were one of those young children with their fingers entwined in the, the fence, the airport fence. So I guess they didn't have quite as many fences back then, did they? They didn't have that many fences. In fact, uh, there are a couple of times I would manage to creep onto the field there, and I guess my most memorable fence was this uh, policeman caught me one time, and uh, when I explained what I was doing, evidently he saw this interest in my eye and flying there, and he said, well, you know, he said, this is a B-10 bomber over here. Have you seen one before? And I said, not very close up. He says, let's take a closer look at it. And both of us climbed up into the B-10 bomber and made believe we were the co-pilot and pilot. So that was my love affair with the, the B-10 bomber and my admiration for the New York City policeman. <laughs> Imagine trying to do that today. I don't, th I don't think anybody could crawl up into a bomber. Just <laughs> I don't think so. That's right. <laughs> well, you were lucky. You, you you were basically there during the golden age of flight, and uh, in in New York, and just at such a young age, being able to be inspired by looking up in the air and seeing those planes overhead. But uh, you took it a little bit further. And this person who inspired you, this policeman, uh, did he is he the one that helped you move forward, or how did you actually get involved in aviation? Got involved in aviation uh, two routes. Uh, Number one, the kids in the neighborhood, and let me just say it was a, a very, very, very integrated uh, neighborhood, but we had a, a sort of a, uh, aviation club, and we used to build these model airplanes, and uh, as I'm sure you're familiar with, balsa wood and tissue paper and glue and the rubber bands for uh, uh, getting the energy to turn to propellers, and we used to fly these things in, in, in competition, but... Also, at the same time, there were war clouds starting to uh, form overhead, uh, these war clouds being World War II. Uh, the draft was started, and the United States uh, military or defense saw that uh, evidently uh, uh, there was going to be uh, a war ahead and wanted to be ready at, uh, at uh, any rate. And what they did is they uh, started the draft at the time there, compulsory servitude uh, in the service by, by all youth between the ages of 18 and uh, 28, I believe, depending upon their physical and, and mental status. But uh, that started the draft. I, I knew I was going to go into the service at uh, 18, but in the, upon investigating the possibility of my going into the uh, 
Army Air Corps, I had found out very early that uh, uh, there was some discrimination involved there and that the Air Corps at the time said that uh, uh, they were not accepting <clears throat> African-American youngsters for training as uh, air crew members or uh, uh, which where I wanted to be as a, a pilot. Uh, however, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, push from the uh, local papers and from uh, political groups and uh, other groups there to try to turn this, what they saw as an injustice as far as the uh, not accepting African-Americans for training as air crew members, to turn that around and... Uh, uh, eventually what had happened is that the Air Corps relented and said, yes, we'll go ahead and train uh, young African uh, males as uh, uh, air crew members, but uh, it must be on a segregated basis. Uh, I immediately, when I saw that, I guess I was around 17 years old, I went to the uh, recruiting station and signed up. Uh, I was too young to be taken in at the time there, but I did take the examination for a cadet corps, and I, I did pass, and uh, it was in obeyance at the time there. At the, reaching the age of 18, I would probably be called in, but also I had to register for the draft at the same time, so it was a, it was a real competition whether I'd be called uh, as a draftee and put in any branch of the service that the uh, service wanted me to go in or whether the Air Corps would call me uh, uh, first and uh, place me in a, a training program. Uh, this, the, the latter is what happened. I was very fortunate that uh, I got called at uh, uh, 18 years old and was sent down to uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, just for one week for uh, orientation uh, as a new recruit. And then from there, uh, I was sent to Tuskegee, Alabama. There was a designated base there for the segregated uh, training of uh, young um, African American uh, uh, air crew members. And that was at Tuskegee Army Airfield, uh, Alabama which happened to be about nine miles away from the famous college or university that's Tuskegee Institute at the time there. Today, it's Tuskegee University, but that was the uh, college that was formed by Booker T. Washington uh, back around the turn of the century there for uh, uh, Negro uh, uh, students uh, at the time. Uh, so I, I guess I... Go ahead. The uh, quick question on about that, the Tuskegee, uh, and you talked about segregation, because there's, there's a lot of folks that are listening that uh, they're younger, and they may not understand this concept. Now, two things. Number one, was it was it just those jobs like uh, flying airplanes that they would segregate the troops, or were there other jobs? And uh, was it was it only in the military? Were there other, you know, go, let's take us back to that era is was it true throughout society that things were segregated it was true throughout society at the time there the depth of the segregation uh, often varied as to where you were from in new york city where i was from uh, segregation was uh, uh, very seldom did you hear of uh, racial segregation there uh, there was prejudice but uh, 
uh, as far as segregation is concerned, I, I attended integrated schools. I, I went to uh, uh, the restaurants were integrated, the movies were integrated, uh, uh, the transportation was uh, integrated. Uh, unlike uh, certain sections of the country that uh, uh, it was an institutional type of thing. It uh, was institutionalized and that there was a rigid segregation as far as the transportation was concerned, as far as restaurants, hotels, uh, entertainment facilities, that type of thing, absolute segregation. Uh, when I went in, <clears throat> as I said, I was from a, uh, uh, a completely mixed uh, neighborhood, and uh, uh, I went in with a number of other fellows from the uh, uh, neighborhood that I was in. We we, we got on the train from at uh, Pennsylvania Station, New York, all of us sitting together and having a jolly good time. When the train got to uh, uh, Washington, D.C., <clears throat> which formed what was called at the time the Mason-Dixon Line, a, a sort of uh, unwritten uh, segregation uh, uh, line between the South and the North. Uh, the conductor came back to the car that uh, we were in, and he pointed to me and he said, uh, you will have to go up front to the first car. That's where the uh, Negro passengers are. And uh, I, my parents had warned me of this and told me what would happen, so it was uh, no really big surprise to me, but the uh, uh, other guys I was with, you know, and most of them were, uh, were white, were aghast, and they, uh, uh, they said, Harry, we're going to go on up there with you, and the conductor said, no, no, you won't, you'll stay back here, this is for the white passengers back here, and of course, the other uh, situation is, while I was traveling down into the uh, south there was the uh, dining facilities, I remember they had a uh, special seat for uh, African-Americans who wanted to eat in the dining car. And in eating, there would be a curtain, a green curtain that they would actually just pull around so you could not be seen by the white passengers in the dining car there and, uh, you know, uh, that type of thing. So it was rigid segregation. When I uh, got to Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, everything on the base was... Uh, pretty much segregated uh, by race. And uh, I, I didn't have any relief from that until I got to the military base that was designated for aspirant uh, 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 flyers, uh, uh, trainees uh, to become uh, pilots, uh, the African-Americans that uh, uh, had uh, successfully passed the examination and uh, that was where uh, uh, where the base was uh, oh, practically 97%, I'd say, uh, uh, African-American. And, of course, nine miles away was the uh, Tuskegee uh, University. So uh, it was an amelioration. I, didn't, I, I really didn't feel the brunt uh, in those locations of the segregation that a lot of other people felt. I, I did not go into town. Uh, I think I'd only been in the uh, year and a half that I was down in Tuskegee. I only think I went into the town one time. And the reason being is that, you know, I, I just didn't want to be humiliated by the segregation that I would have to put up to in going to the town. Plus, 
there was all of the social outlets, uh, facilities that I, I would want uh, at the university and uh, at the airfield. Plus, the girls were pretty over at the uh, air base there, you know, I mean, over at the uh, university. <laughs> that's, one of the, that's one of the main reasons. But, you know, this is this is interesting that you say this because uh, one of the things that some of us that are, that are a little younger don't understand it's hard for us to conceptualize this uh, as far as segregation, especially in, in something that's federal like uh, the military. Uh, it, it's almost far. It, it's almost like another world, but I'm talking to you and it, it happened. And, and this is, this is really important to tell this story. And I tell you what, you must, you must be proud of what you've done. That's for sure. And, and proud that you're one of the people at the forefront uh, of kind of breaking down these barriers, going to Tuskegee and joining this, uh, I guess, eventually the 332nd fighter group. But, but that word Tuskegee Airmen, we hear that hear that so often. Uh, that's not originally there wasn't really called Tuskegee Airmen. I mean that that's a different moniker. I think that came later, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. That didn't come until sometime in the seventies. There was a uh, a doctor, I believe, by the name of Charles Francis, and he decided he wanted to write a book about the experiences of the black uh, uh, aviators. Uh, in World War II, and for want of a name, uh, he said, well, they all trained down in Tuskegee, Alabama, so uh, I'll name the book The Tuskegee Airmen, and that's how that came about. Interesting. So that's true? That's where all the the African-Americans actually trained was in Tuskegee? Okay, interesting. So tell us, going back to Tuskegee now, and since uh, this is an aviation podcast, boy, I'd love to hear about the airplanes that you were able to train in and what the experience was like. Well, uh, the first plane that I flew, and uh, that was in the college training detachment, let me say that, you know, the the requirements to uh, go into the uh, uh, flying uh, service uh, in the military uh, you, you were guaranteed on becoming a uh, officer, and they wanted to be sure that uh, you had the formal educational background uh, uh, before you were taken in. And uh, they required a uh, at least two years of college uh, before you uh, uh, would be accepted to go into service there. Uh, at the beginning of the war, uh, uh, they were losing so many pilots uh, on those first few missions that they went on that they felt as though they were going to have to reduce that re- educational requirement down in order to get the number of people that they uh, uh, needed the service to make up for the losses that they had. So uh, they realized that the educational subjects that you had to take as a aviation cadet uh, may be uh, over the head of uh, just a plain high school graduate and uh, what they decided to do is form a uh, organization throughout the entire United States for recruits who were coming in who did not have the college requirements that they wanted, and they called it the College Training Detachment. <clears throat> and all of these detachments were in various universities and colleges throughout the United States. And it was six months of intensive training in math, physics, and uh, chemistry, and uh, a few other subjects there to try to bring you up to pause so that you could go ahead and comprehend and uh, 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 be able to be uh, successful as far as the knowledge requirements are concerned in the, uh, in the training that you're going to have. So 
I, I, that was a long story just to say that I went into a, uh, the college training detachment at Tuskegee University there and spent six months uh, uh, on the campus studying there. Uh, what they did is at the end of your training there, they gave you uh, a 10-hour uh, orientation in flight. Uh, and prior to that time, I had never been in an aeroplane before in my life. So they had this 10-hour orientation. Uh, you didn't solo at the time there, but they give you this orientation in a uh, J-3 Cub uh, aircraft. And uh, uh, they, they taught you uh, or made you familiar uh, with being in the air and what it was like and being up there and uh, handling the controls and that type of thing. Uh, I, I I didn't think I was going to make it at first because uh, uh, I had uh, a problem with what uh, some people call a, a negative transfer. But when I was a kid, we used to build these uh, what we call pushos in New York. Uh, uh, they're better known as these go-karts. But, you know, there's the uh, two-by-four board that's in front of you there and you're sitting on this box and in the front there's the cross beam and at the end or the ends of this cross beam are the, are the wheels so that when you steer this thing you, you would steer it with your feet and if you wanted to turn left you would push the right foot in to go ahead and turn left and if you wanted to turn right you would push your left foot in to turn left. You don't do that in an aeroplane. <laughs> that and, definitely uh, is negative transfer. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, of course, I, I just couldn't understand at first, and it was uh, uh, a couple hours before I got used to uh, uh, handling the controls or the rudders uh, the right way there. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> they didn't wash out anybody in the uh, CTD there, but then I went over to the air base, and that's where I started uh, uh, during the real flying there. And uh, the first aircraft that I flew was the uh, uh, Cornell, and it was the PT-19. And the, uh, that was a 200-horsepower uh, aircraft, open cockpit, low wing, uh, very wide landing gear, and... Uh, 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 we had something like 60 hours in that. And through the service, you go through the various check. You go through a 20-hour trek and a 40-hour check and a 60-hour uh, check. And all of these checks uh, determine whether they, they felt as though you were able enough or you had learned enough or capable enough to continue with the uh, next phase. They had to go to the next check. Uh, needless to say, this is where most of the cadets were what they call washed out. They were eliminated. And uh, they were eliminated not because they had no ability or to learn how to fly, but uh, they have a, 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 a setback as, as far as a, a problem is concerned with some phase of the flying there. And the <clears throat> Air Corps could not afford the time of uh, taking the time to train, and uh, they had to keep up with the, uh, with the uh, advancement of the class there. So that's where most of the uh, students were washed out. The next phase I went to was called BASIC, and I flew the Volte, 
Uh, it was a 450 horsepower all metal uh, aircraft. Uh, uh, it was quite a bit more complicated than the uh, primary trainer, the Cornell. And again, there was the 60 hours that you would get in that and uh, uh, going from uh, the 20-hour check and 40-hour check and 60-hour check. And then on to what's the last phase of the flying there is uh, advanced. And uh, there we flew what was known as the AT-6 Texan, uh, which was even a more complicated, a more sophisticated plane. It had uh, retractable landing gear, uh, all metal, uh, 650 horsepower, a uh, constant speed propeller on it, and it was it was quite advanced. It was just about as advanced as a lot of the fighters uh, at that time, as far as the flying was concerned. And then after that, I uh, got my uh, I got my wings and uh, second lieutenant's bars and. Uh, as far as getting the wings was concerned, I was 19 years old at the time there, but uh, the thing that might surprise some people a little bit when I tell them is that I didn't even know how to drive a car yet. <laughs> and uh, that being from New York and, uh, you know, the rapid transit system that they had in New York, you really didn't need a car. The family didn't have a car. So anyway, uh, Learning how to drive came later on, as far as I was concerned. So you're flying this really complex airplane before you even knew how to just drive a basic car. That's amazing. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. So that T6 now, is that, so do, what happens after that? Now you have your wings. Where do you go from there? I got uh, orientation, what they call orientation, in the P-40 uh, Warhawk. That's uh, for the... Uh, people who don't know, that's the uh, plane. It was an iconic plane as far as the appearance was concerned. It had the tiger shark mouth on it and that type of thing. And uh, uh, it was a 1,200-horsepower Allison engine, uh, low wing, more metal, of course. And uh, uh, this was the first aircraft that I was to fly, or any of the cadets who had gotten to that point there would fly without getting actual dual instructions in the craft. It was a single-seater, and uh, you would just have to take all of the knowledge that you learned about flying and uh, learn how to fly the, uh, uh, the P-40 uh, uh, without the uh, benefit of having uh, an instructor with you. So what they did was uh, uh, they would give you a uh, what they call a user manual, and this would give all of the specifications as far as the plane was concerned, how much it weighed, and uh, oh things like uh, what the stalling speed was, and all of that type of thing. And then uh, they give you a cockpit check, and this is our blindfold cockpit check, and this is so you can point out or know by uh, uh, memory where all of the instruments, specific instruments were and the different gear and the cockpit and that type of thing. And then at that time they said, well, it's all yours. Go ahead. And you go out and uh, you take off yourself. And uh, this is the first time you've had to just take a plane off without any instructions in that uh, aircraft whatsoever. So I managed to do that okay, took it up for uh, an hour or so or something like that and did some stalls to sort of get acquainted with the characteristics of the aircraft and 
uh, I got 10 hours that way. Uh, after that, uh, I was sent to uh, Walterboro, South Carolina, which was for specific training in uh, uh, fighter planes. And there I flew the P-47 Thunderbolt. I flew all the models of it, the B, C, and D models. And uh, there I got something like 80 hours uh, in the Thunderbolt. And I went through the rituals of uh, all of the combat readiness, such as dive bombing, skip bombing, and uh, strafing, all of that type of thing. And uh, uh, after that, I was ready to go overseas. And uh, I was sent overseas in uh, 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 December, November of uh, 1944, uh, got over to uh, France uh, as an intermediary stop, uh, but then after spending some holidays in France there, I finally went to my final base in Italy, and uh, that was in Ramatelli, uh, Italy, and it was down near the spur in the boot there, and to join the 332nd Fighter Group, which was the all-Negro uh, uh, fighter group uh, that they had over there at the time. Uh, they had, it was made up of uh, four combat squadrons, and each squadron having approximately 25 or 30 planes in uh, each squadron there, and a complement of a uh, light number of, uh, of uh, fighter pilots. Uh, that's where I flew my first mission, and just like with the P-40, when I flew my uh, first fighter plane there, uh, they handed me a uh, instruction manual uh, to tell me about the characteristics of the uh, aircraft, uh, uh, the weight, the uh, uh, stalling speed, and that type of thing, and they said, it's all yours, and I took it off, and after a, an hour of a acquaintanceship with the aircraft, I was I was ready to go out on a, uh, on a combat mission. Without an instructor? Without an instructor, that's right. I, I just, I'm like, really? Here's the manual, go out, and, and that, wow. What, yeah. Was it scary? Yeah. I mean, I, I, at first, I'd be like, wow, I'd be a little nervous. Well, uh, I was nervous, I guess, with the P-40 the first time, but, you know, uh, uh, I, I gained the confidence in saying that re really I didn't need the uh, instructor pilot to show me how to do it. Now, they've they trained me well enough in the past so that uh, I should have the capabilities uh, uh, of uh, taking up any uh, fighter aircraft with the proper uh, understanding of the characteristics uh, of the uh, craft there with the uh, user manual. So I had gained the confidence enough and I had looked forward to uh, actually uh, soloing in that uh, uh, that aircraft, the P-51, because, you know, that was the Cadillac of the sky at the time there and that was quite a leap forward as far as the advancement of the uh, fighter aircraft was concerned to get into a uh, a P-51. How'd you like so, flying? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, it was like an extension of your own body. You know, like the, <laughs> the wings were like my uh, my arms and the fuselage like my body and the, the uh, rudder like my uh, uh, like my legs there, you know. And I, I just felt as though the airplane and I had become one, you know. We were uh, just melded together. It was a beautiful aircraft. Uh, some people said, well, what was your most favorite aircraft during World War II, and uh, what one would you like to fly more? Well, they think I would say the uh, P-51, 
P-51, but actually the P-47 was a uh, endeared uh, aircraft as far as I'm concerned. And the reason being that those were my two favorites is that I think they were designed for two different types of mission. The P-51 was a very, very long-range aircraft that uh, was uh, operated very well at high altitude, but very, very, very maneuverable, very maneuverable, uh, fast uh, rate of turn on it. Uh, the P-47, I would select for uh, close support work. That's a ground, con ground work like uh, strafing and that type of thing. It had eight machine guns, four in each wing, and uh, it was... Uh, uh, a very well-built aircraft. Uh, uh, there are stories of pilots coming back losing a cylinder, and still the plane was running and uh, uh, actually having flak hit the plane and uh, uh, huge holes in the plane there, gaps, uh, torn metal on the plane, and the plane bringing the pilot back. Not so with the P-51. It was a very fragile aircraft. Uh, the P-47 was air-cooled, and uh, uh, the P-51 was uh, liquid-cooled. And if you lost that liquid coolant, it's uh, within 60 seconds, your engine would freeze up on you, and that's it. You had a, a dead aircraft there, so you either had to look for a place to set it down, belly it in, or uh, look for a, a, a suitable place to uh, bail out. But it was a very fragile aircraft, but uh, as I said in the beginning there, is that it was a highly maneuverable aircraft and could pretty much hold its own with any of the uh, enemy aircraft uh, that uh, was flying in the sky at the time there. So what did said, they oh. use? Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, what did they use that for? It, it's fragile, but it's also very powerful because of the fact it's so maneuverable. But you, so you're in the boot of Italy, and why is why did they put you there? And and what were your missions? The uh, boot of Italy was sort of an assembly point for uh, uh, the bombers and fighters of uh, uh, of uh, the Fifteenth Air Force. Uh, the 15th Air Force was made up of uh, uh, a large, uh, two large bomber components. That was B-17s, uh, Liberators, and B-24s, Flying Fortresses, and also uh, a large uh, fighter contingent made up of seven fighter groups that were there to protect the bombers. And uh, the bases that we were at in Italy there, they were not under attack or that type of thing. We were far enough away from the uh, battle lines there. Uh, this was the strategic, what was known as the 15th Strategic Air Force. And we were flying long-range missions from Italy into Central Europe. And uh, we were flying as escorts, we fighter pilots were flying as escorts for the bombers there to protect them, the bombers, from uh, interception by uh, uh, enemy fighter craft. And that was our sole duty, is to protect the uh, bombers, to fly escort and uh, protect the bombers. So how far did you go? I mean, it seems like the bombers would have a lot more gas than you would to be able to get out uh, downrange. Uh, how about you? Did you have to turn back, or did you get refueled? How did that work? The way they worked it, you're right, that the bombers had uh, much more endurance as far as the fuel supply was concerned. They uh, uh, 
they had something like a 10-hour fuel supply where the uh, fighter planes that we had uh, may have had about a six or six and a half hour fuel supply maximum. Uh, we would shuttle. That was the way we did it, is that uh, we were so much faster. We could race. Uh, 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 we, we could follow the bombers from a long distance, uh, time-wise was concerned, catch up with a certain body of the bombers there, escort them, and when we got pretty, pretty low on our fuel there, we could turn back, but everything was timed, the mission timed for another fighter group to come in and take our place uh, over the bombers to, for them to proceed on to the uh, target there. So it was a case of uh, shuttling uh, 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 that's the, the best way uh, that I uh, I can put it. So that must have been a lot of work. I mean, oh yeah, oh, yeah. it was the longest mission I can think that we went on was to uh, Berlin, and that was sixteen hundred miles round trip. <laughs> and uh, we uh, that was six and a half hours for the fighters, but uh, even longer uh, for the bombers there. And of course, we shuttled on there. I remember uh, uh, when we shuttled we. We we took off the bomber. I remember sitting in the uh, cockpit there, and uh, uh, I haven't even started my engine yet. Sitting on the ground, and the bombers are passing overhead, heading towards the target. And maybe uh, uh, maybe an hour later, or uh, uh, half forty five minutes later, I'm starting engines to go ahead and uh, get ready to catch up with the bombers to uh, escort them uh, to the target and maybe out of the target. And what I mean by that is that uh, when I catch up with the bombers, uh, they were over maybe Dresden, which is about 75 miles uh, south of, uh, of Berlin, and take them into the target, escort them and bring them back out of the target to uh, Dresden there where we've actually escorted them for about 150 miles and then we look at my fuel tank and uh, and we see that uh, that the fuel is just barely enough to get back to the base and whoop, here comes another fighter group to take our place, time just right so that they can take our place while we fly them back to the base. So that was six and a half hours uh, Sitting on our rumps there, which was uh, quite a tiresome, tiresome thing, believe it or not. And if 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 nobody can uh, believe me, just try strapping yourself into a chair for six and a half hours and not being able to uh, get up, stand up, and relax or anything like that. Just fasten to that chair there. It's uh, it's it's really a tedious job. Yeah, you couldn't couldn't just uh, pull over if you had to go to the bathroom or anything. So it's a, <laughs> it's a little bit tough. <laughs> With with that said, I mean this uh, the the group of fighters that were going out there. This uh, was part of the 332nd Fighter Group. You hear this term uh, "red tails" a lot. Why why did they use that term? How did that come about? Well, that was the color of the uh, uh, tails uh, of our tails there, and uh, uh, everybody. This was strictly you know radio silence was a uh, a big thing. Uh, during World War II there, uh, uh, if people are chattering and uh, uh, divulging all of the information they're doing in the air, uh, it just facilitated the enemy to uh, spot you where you are and uh, 
take advantage uh, of the situation uh, uh, that you have at the time there. So radio silence was uh, pretty much of a must there. Uh, to obviate that problem of the radio silence there, everybody had color coatings on their aircraft so that we would know who was friendly and who wasn't friendly, not only by the design of the aircraft, but by the color of the uh, markings that they had. Uh, all of the fighter groups that we had, they had special colors. The uh, white group uh, that, that was down the road from us there, the 52nd Fighter Group, uh, they had uh, uh, yellow tails, uh, as you mentioned. We had red tails. The 332nd Fighter Group had candy, uh, had uh, checkerboard tails. The 31st Fighter Group had uh, candy stripe tails. So it was all a, a, a point. So we had visual reference, and one of these fighter groups, if one of those planes from this fighter group should get anywhere with the eyesight of me, I could tell where they were from and uh, knew whether they were uh, uh, friendly or not. So that was the only purpose of it. It was strictly for uh, identification. So when you're flying over there and uh, you talk about all these hours in the seat, it, it seems like that could be quite boring, but then there must have been times where it wasn't boring, was quite exciting. So tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe some of your interactions with the enemy. Well, it reminds me of... Uh, I don't know whether it was Pappy Borington or it was one of the aces, you know, and he was being interviewed and they, they asked him, what was it like, you know, to be on a mission and flying uh, uh, up there? And I think his remark was something like, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, a, a, a time of uh, extreme, what did he call it, uh, uh, time of... Uh, Oh, golly, Moses. Uh, like boredom. Extreme boredom. That's it. <laughs> A time of extreme boredom punctuated with instances of absolute terror. Wow. So that's, that's how they put it. So that's the best way I think I could put it or, or I think of anybody putting it, you know. Uh, that flying, that long distance like that was just very tiresome. It was uh, uh, very boring and that type of thing. But then it was punctuated by uh, moments of e extreme terror, not only from the uh, for enemy aircraft that you might have, but from the flak that might be shot up at you, and even from problems that you might have with your own aircraft, such as you might have an engine that's starting to malfunction or something like that. And, you know, those are the, you're sitting over the Alps, and you don't want to bail out no. over the uh, Alps there, you know, and... Uh, so that was it. So one of the things that I, I keep thinking about is that, you know, how do you, like these engagements, how do they start? In other words, do you know it's about to happen or does is it all of a sudden, all of a sudden like a light switch going on? Oh, my gosh, we're in a fight. Uh, oh, my gosh, we're in a fight. You know, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, flying, you can actually see sometimes the enemy fighters sitting out a distance away and, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of a, uh, uh, a, a game that they're playing and trying to distract you and uh, uh, get you out of position so that they can come in and take a shot at the bombers there. And uh, uh, I, I can think of the one uh, situation that I was in was over in uh, uh, Austria. Uh, we were escorting a uh, bomb group uh, over Austria, and uh, 
uh, intelligence, uh, when the uh, mission was called, uh, they said that uh, we pay, possibly may want uh, uh, some of the fighters that are up there to uh, leave the bombers uh, if we felt as though the bombers were uh, in safe territory. Uh, leave the bombers and go on what's known as a fighter sweep. And this fighter sweep would be uh, going after targets of what they call targets of opportunity. Uh, river barges on the Danube, uh, in the case that I'm uh, talking about in, uh, uh, in Vienna there, or uh, rolling traffic, rolling stock uh, on, the, on the highways, uh, uh, trains uh, uh, that might be on the uh, railroad there, and of course, uh, enemy fighter craft, uh, enemy aircraft, and especially enemy fighters, if we ran into them. Uh, I was with a group of seven that was uh, uh, asked to go on this uh, fighter sweep after we had completed the uh, escort of the bombers, and uh, we ran into a horde of uh, FW-190s, those uh, uh, fighter plane, German uh, fighter planes, and... Uh, Seven of, uh, of the seven of us, three of us were shot down. Uh, this was on Easter Sunday, by the way, April 1st, uh, 1945. April Fool's Day. Uh, April Fool's Day, that's right. And uh, three of us were shot down. One uh, was damaged badly enough that he was able to make it back to friendly ter ter territory in Yugoslavia. Uh, the second pilot, he was killed instantly in being shot down. The third pilot, his name is Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, his plane was severely damaged, and uh, he bailed out. And when he alighted in his parachute, he was picked up by uh, a mob of uh, uh, Austrian uh, people and uh, taken to a local jailhouse uh, near Lenz, uh, Austria. About two nights later, Another mob formed and uh, broke into the jail, uh, took Walter out and uh, beat him up pretty badly, but then they, uh, uh, they hung him from a, uh, a lamppost. They executed him. They lynched him. And uh, that's not to say that this was that unique uh, as far as it was concerned or unique for the... Uh, 332nd Fighter Group, this, this happened to a number of uh, air crew members, uh, especially those that uh, bailed out or crash-landed near the scene of where they dropped the bombs and that type of thing. And, of course, the, the citizenry was uh, irate, and uh, they, uh, they wanted to take revenge out on the uh, uh, air crew members at the time there. So... Uh, there were something, uh, uh, a large number of not just <clears throat> American pilots, but uh, also of South African, uh, RCAF, uh, Canadian, New Zealanders, and uh, who were uh, executed uh, uh, upon uh, landing or uh, crashing in the uh, enemy territory.
That's tough stuff listening to that. It's just, you know, the inhumanity uh, towards yes. prisoners. These are yes. prisoners of war. So, And this happened. And uh, and one of the reasons we're telling this story is, you know, it kind of wakes us up to certain things that have happened in life. It's tough to tell that. It really is. Um, but going, you know, back to that, did, did that, knowing those stories, I'm sure that that maybe influenced the way you fought. Maybe you uh, were a little more driven. Yeah, that's right. We wanted to get the uh, war over with, and uh, uh, we were warned. We were told by intelligence that uh, this could happen, and uh, and uh, that uh, if you go down near the vicinity where the uh, bombing had taken place, is try to get as far away from there as possible. Number one, and number two, try to stay away from the civilian populace if you see a uh, uh, air force. Uh, a German uh, or, you know, enemy Air Force uh, people uh, try to turn yourself over to them and the chances are you're going to have much better treatment than you would with the uh, uh, civilians. Interesting. Wow. That, that's, uh, it's, it's just amazing hearing that. And it, it really, the hair stands up on the back of my neck when you tell me about that. But going back to the fight, though, as far as uh, you being there in the fight as a fighter pilot, the, it, during, I noticed there was a story that in one day you had three victories. And I think that uh, I'm assuming that is the reason why you did get the Distinguished Flying Cross or possibly was part of it, a big part of it. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How, do you, how did you get three victories in one day? Well, that was on that uh, mission I was talking about. And, you know, a victory is, uh, usually means you've uh, shot down uh, uh, another aircraft. Uh, in my situation, I uh, shot down two aircraft, found these two guys uh, uh, in front of me. I don't think they saw me at all. And uh, I had what they call zero deflection shot on them. And uh, uh, as they say, a lot of the planes in World War II there that were shot down, they never saw the person that shot them down. So uh, uh, it was one of those situations there. I don't think they saw me at first. And... Uh, I had a zero-degree deflection on uh, one of the guys there. They were flying formation, and uh, pieces started coming off of his aircraft, and he peeled over and started down. But at that time, the second guy must have realized what was happening, and he started to turn. And uh, I imagine before he got really into the turn there, I was able to uh, uh, get a deflection on him, and I I, uh, noticed some pieces coming off of his aircraft. aircraft also and uh, I went over him at the time there but uh, simultaneously uh, I saw these uh, tracers coming by me and uh, here's this guy this uh, uh, FW190 is on my tail and uh, uh, he had he really had a had me dead to right and uh, I guess I panicked at the time there and I I, I split est and dove to the ground and pulling off, doing anything I could to shake him off of my tail there. And uh, I, I came out around the uh, uh, ground level, around the trees, and uh, I started pulling a, a very, very, very tight turn. And uh, he was evidently inside of me and was trying to get this deflection on me. And I think he over-controlled, and the uh, aircraft snapped and... Uh, he over-controlled and uh, did what's known as a high-speed stall, I guess, and went into the ground. 
and uh, that was it. But anyway, uh, intelligence gave me credit for that. I, I didn't argue with intelligence. They said, yeah, well, you get credit for that also. So that's how I got my, my three, really. You know, I got two as far as the shooting is concerned, and the, the third one was a, well, a gift, I guess. Well, gosh, and any gift is is a gift, especially in war, and uh, and we'll take it. Now, go you you got the distinguished flying cross, and and you went back home, and uh, you rotated. I'm assuming out of the military, and I'm thinking now that the Tuskegee Airmen and yourself, you've proven yourselves as African American. I'm assuming things had changed somewhat when you got back. So tell us a little bit about that experience as far as aviation. I think uh, you thought about moving on a, in a career in aviation afterwards. No, uh, Carl, things did not change. Uh, uh, it was the same old, same old. The uh, social atmosphere that uh, we had in the country uh, uh, prior to the war that I experienced during the war and, and prior to the war <coughs> was the same that I experienced when I uh, got out of the service. <clears throat> One of the things I did was I, I apply, applied with two airlines and uh, I thought I had sufficient hours to, uh, uh, to get a job with the airlines, but uh, both of them rejected me uh, on the basis of, uh, of my, uh, uh, my color. Uh, one airline did not bother to uh, explain, just said that they're not hiring uh, at, the, at the time. The other one, uh, the, I guess it was the personnel officer came out, and I guess he felt he owed me some type of an explanation, and he wanted to give me the uh, rationale and, uh, uh, of his uh, or the airline and not accepting me. And he said, uh, you know, just imagine yourself as a passenger on uh, one of our planes there, and uh, uh, this... Uh, uh, colored fellow gets up and uh, walks through the aisle up into the cockpit and uh, uh, sits behind the controls of the plane and he says you can, you can understand that that might be quite alarming uh, for the passengers and uh, I started telling him no I don't understand but uh, he was trying to get his point across you know as far as this was uh, uh, for the sake of the airline there and uh, uh, it really wasn't that they were prejudiced or anything like that. It was just that uh, um, uh, for the sake of the uh, salvation of the airline, that they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't hire me. Well, well anyway. That's tough. I mean, because yeah, you yeah. just fought in a war. You know, and no, I know. Well, you know, that happened to a lot of guys. You know, I was one of uh, uh, quite a few guys that got their wings. You know, black Americans got, got their uh, wings at the time there. And. Uh, a number of them met the same, you know, response uh, from the airlines. However, is uh, I guess it was uh, a couple of, uh, or a number of years later, maybe 10, uh, maybe a little bit 12 years later, uh, the airlines, just like the uh, Air Force did, recanted and um, uh, decided that uh, they would go ahead and accept uh, African Americans as uh, crew members on the airliners there, uh, skipping uh, fast ahead uh, to today, it uh, reminds me of uh, my taking a flight. I, I'm trying to remember if it was from from somewhere in uh, Atlanta, from Hartsfield uh, 
in Atlanta to, uh, I can't remember where, but I, I looked in the cockpit there and there were two African-Americans who were uh, crew members, co-pilot and pilot in the cockpit. And uh, what really got me and brought tears to my eyes is that they were both female. So wow. that's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, that, that is. Uh, yes. So that, you know, today you will find uh, 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 the blacks flying as crew members in every one of the uh, uh, airlines that you have in the United States, uh, plus the uh, cargo lines like uh, UPS and uh, FedEx and that type of thing. So uh, I, I don't know how significant their numbers are, but they are there. There's no question about it. And, you know, so I have the rating of captain and, uh, you know, senior pilot and that type of thing. So, uh, and it's growing, I, and I think that's that's terrific. It's people like you, though, that paved the way for these folks. And, uh, and you know, I'm sure I would feel frustrated, especially coming out and saying, hey, I just fought in a war, and gosh, you know, I didn't get the chance to work at the airlines. But, but you went on and had a great life, but you also paved the way for these other people people so you must be proud of that well yes i i i, I am and uh, uh what i did at the time there I, I realized the time was running out on me as far as uh, uh my becoming an airline pilot was concerned and i decided that you know maybe i better try for a, uh, a backup and i uh, went to uh, uh, New York University and uh, got my degree in uh, mechanical engineering and uh, went up the uh, corporate uh, uh, route uh, as far as my uh, vocation and, uh, was concerned there. So uh, it, it paid off my going to school and that type of thing. So, you know, any, any of the youth that hear this story or something like that, you know, I would always advise them to. Uh, have a backup plan. You know, I hear so many of the youth talk about, well, I want to be an athlete. And, you know, I say to them, well, you know, what happens if you uh, 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 snap your Achilles tendon or something like that, you know, and uh, wh wh what are you going to do, you know? And they sort of look at me blank. I said, you better have a backup position there, you know, something else that you can uh, go ahead and uh, take advantage of. So That's great advice. Boy, it's just uh -huh. any pilot has a backup plan, right? Uh -huh. Right, right. So did you actually, now you got out, out of aviation, uh, but that really wasn't the end. You did continue, I think, uh, flying airplanes or, or uh, gliders, I think it was. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I was working in uh, Michigan here and, uh, of course, uh, working in the engineering uh, uh, job that I had. But uh, after retirement, uh, uh I uh, was fooling around a little bit, and uh, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen Museum that's uh, in uh, Detroit uh, were given a gift of three motor gliders by the uh, Air Force, and uh, this was because uh, they, uh, their motor gliders were obsolete and they were giving them to various museums uh, throughout the country. There were 13 of them that they gave away at the time. And they gave three of them to the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, these contract pilots flew them into the airport in, uh, in Michigan here and landed them. And then the uh, Tuskegee Airmen were standing there looking and said, well, what do we do with these now? <laughs> so I got an idea. And I said, I used to fly. 
And uh, I said, let's find a uh, instructor pilot, and, which I got. And uh, at 82 years old, I got my, uh, uh, my uh, commercial pilot's license in uh, motor gliders there. And uh, what I decided to do with it was fly local neighborhood kids around to give them sort of an orientation to flying. They're hoping that this might inculcate some sort of desire in them to uh, uh, maybe follow, follow a vocational path in the field of uh, aviation. So I did this a number of years, flying these motor gliders around with these kids there until I was about... Uh, I guess 97, something like that, or 98, and uh, I decided then I would go ahead and give it up. But I had so much fun doing that. And uh, Even today, though, at uh, 95 years old, I was down at uh, Atlanta, uh, when was that, uh, in last September, and uh, somebody had a, uh, a two-seater P-51. It was a converted P-51 Mustang and dual controls, and uh, they put a, took the uh, fuselage tank out and put a seat, another seat, where that was, and asked me if I wanted to go up. So I had chance to go up in the P-51 again, and uh, oh, the wow. pilot was kind enough to ask me, he said, what would you like to do? Why don't you take it, you know? So I got the controls, and I did a couple of rolls, and uh, I think I did a loop. And I, uh, I said, take me back to the field. I'm worn out, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I still get some time in like that, you know, flying around. So yeah. I, I still enjoy flying a little bit. But even though I don't do it by myself, I'm usually with a uh, uh, qualified pilot. But uh, well, gosh, it's fun. It, it keeps you young, too. And, uh, and you sound so young, too. When you said 95, I was a little shocked. Uh, and it really, it's interesting that you have this vibrancy that most people don't, but I think it's because of, of your past and the fact that you continually uh, help people and, and move people forward. You know, be, before we close, I, I do want to say one thing is that I, I think we've really come a long way since you got into aviation back in the, you know, the forties and, and things have really changed a lot. And, but we're still at that point where we need to promote, I think, aviation amongst uh, African Americans. I mean, in in general, I think there are some that may think that they can't do it, maybe because of their race, maybe because of their background, etc. What would you tell those folks? Well, I tell them that uh, you know what what I did is uh, uh, there was all sorts of discouragements and that type of thing, and uh, uh, what I did is I. I I, I kept my eye on the prize. I, I, I just wouldn't let anything deter me or circumstances or anything like that as far as uh, uh, flying is concerned. Uh, the other thing is, uh, other than uh, keeping your eye on the prize there, is to seek out uh, people who have done this. Uh, seek out the pilots who are, are flying. Seek out the people who are engineers and who have gone to school and stand uh, a number of years in school getting their engineering degrees. Seek out these doctors and nurses who have uh, 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 gone through and then get the true story from them of what it's like and uh, hoping that uh, maybe this uh, they can be uh, uh, attitudes inculcated so that uh, uh, they aspire towards uh, uh, one of these professions like that and you mentioned the uh, flying there and uh, 
certainly that's what I would do as flying is concerned uh, here in Detroit. And uh, I'm sure that uh, in, in a, non a lot of sections of the country there, there are organizations that uh, uh, will go ahead and provide you with uh, uh, aviation uh, experience. Uh, I, I know with the Tuskegee Airmen, I know kids who have come out to the airports there and they said to the uh, uh, people who own the aircraft, can I, if, if, if you take me up sometime, I'll be gladly polish your airplane for you and they wash the airplane down and that type of thing. And uh, one of the kids I know, definitely, I remember he was doing that and now he's an airline pilot, you know. I'm, I'm talking about a period of, uh, of 12 years or something like that has gone by, but... Uh, uh, this kid wanted to fly and uh, fly bad enough to hang around the airports there. And uh, uh, that's what I did when I was a kid, hanging around the airport, uh, uh, LaGuardia Airport or North Beach Airport in, in New York there. And, and that's where I got the, uh, you know, strong desire and the yin. And I think of that policeman that uh, caught me. Uh, sneaking onto the field there and said, let's, let's take a look at this B, B-10 bomber here, you know. And I, I think all of that had a great influence on, on my life, and I would hope that incidents like that would have a great influence upon the uh, other youth in the community, especially the uh, African-American youth. Well, that policeman, hopefully we can find some of those in our lives, and uh, and maybe you can be one of those if you're listening and inspire others to fly. Uh, this has really been, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, this has been absolutely a pleasure having you on the podcast here at Stuck Mike Avcast, and your story truly has inspired others, and, and you have led the way, you've paved the path for others to follow and just by your example by doing this people can listen and say hey listen this he did it and he did it during a period it was much tougher i can do it and and i think that's a really important thing to remember but also what you said was really i think key reach out there's so many organizations out there uh there's redtail.org there's also uh the black pilots associations there's aopa there's eaa the women in aviation all those great organizations that are trying to really include everybody in aviation. So, so next time we will, you know, and it's happening, you know, we aren't talking about, you know, black pilots or, or female pots, they're pilots. And I think that's, what's been changing in society still has a way to go, but, but we've really come a long way and that's because of you. And I really appreciate that. Carl, don't forget the book and uh, the author Philip yep. Handelman, and uh, it's. Uh, it, I think it's a very good book, really. Now, and and I'm. I really wanted to to close with that is that soaring to glory, a Tuskegee Airman's firsthand account of World War II. Phil Handelman, he did a incredible job. Like you said, he really is a wordsmith, and the stories just just read him. No matter what, read what he has on the page, and you will be brought into this story. But it's also the story about. An individual, and uh, it's about you. It's about Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, and it's uh, it's something where you will learn from it. You'll also be drawn into it, and you're going to have a lot of emotions. You're going to learn history, but you're also going to be inspired by the story. So make sure you go out and and read this book. It's all over the internet. You can find it. Uh, I just downloaded it, by the way, as an ebook. It's terrific. I was reading it. I was up late last night reading it. It's uh, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II. In the show notes, we'll have links to that. It's really easy to find in Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, all the different bookstores that are out there. Incredible author, incredible story. Again, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, thanks so much for being on the show. And thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 
Well, this is Carl Blair with the Stuck Mike Avcast, and we encourage you to read this book and also be inspired by this story and, and just get out there and try to inspire others just like Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart has done. We'll talk to you next episode and safe long. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.